Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. In today's economic climate, construction cost and schedule overruns can be disastrous. Innate construction software helps you spot risks before they happen. Their cloud-based solutions give you the real-time insights you need to minimize risk and improve operational efficiency. With Innate, you keep projects on schedule and under budget. Get started today at innate.com. That's I-N-E-I-G-H-T.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to a brand new episode of the Project Chatter podcast. It's exciting to be here as usual, and we've gone full naked, no virtual backgrounds today. We are deciding to just let you into our little worlds. Dale, how are you, sir? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Val. I think we're mm. holding true to the raw, informal, but hopefully informative with, as always, the guests we have on the show. Yeah, really good to be back. Um, yeah, exciting stuff. Awesome, mate. And we've got um, Glow in the Dark Martin here. How are you, Dan? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, and and yourself? Not too bad, mate. Not too bad. It uh, Obviously, I missed out last week, so it's good to see you guys again uh, using a new platform too. So I'll, I'll see how we go uh, with this. As long as we can hear each other, I'm, I'm fine. But uh, let's introduce our new guest, Christine McLean. How are you? Good, thank you. Very good. Now, uh, listen, we've got a lot to cover in a small amount of time because I think I, I get the vibe that we could talk for hours and hours and hours. We're being a little bit silly before we press record, but uh, rest assured you are in good hands, Christine. Um, but why don't we talk about some formalities first, just to get that out the way. Um, ACOSTI, what is ACOSTI? Um, I know this is you, your, uh, your, one of your brands or one of your flags, perhaps. Um, what do they do? What's their vision? So ACOSTI is the professional body for project people in project controls. Um, their vision is to be recognized and acknowledged as a global leading learned society and professional authority for project controls whilst growing our membership. So we've got about 1,700 people, uh, well, 1,700 members, not people, members. Um, we've got currently nine directors that head that up, and we all have different roles and responsibilities. And what we're trying mm -hmm. to do is, I hate to say this, bring it into the 21st century. Um, with We're looking at new website, new branding, new logos, new defined roles and responsibilities for directors, pushing the association forward. Um, mm. So we, we have a training arm, we do endpoint assessment for apprenticeships. Um, and all I can say, there's certain things I can't say, there's certain things I can say, which which is to be shared with the world. Um, we have our conference in July where I'm bringing something new to it. Um, let's put it that, put it that way. Mm. Um, something called Unjudge Yourself. So we're going to have some people that are um either neurodiverse part of the lgbtqias plus community uh people that practice religions and it's having that open conversation with people um because up until recently and it's no secret that our blue books our membership rules says he so i'm not being funny i am definitely not a bloke um i shouldn't have even been a member let alone their president um so that is the first thing we're changing mm. um 
but it's it's I, I'm a big believer in behavioural skills and cultural skills and it's that bit that makes the difference. I can teach anyone to plan. I can teach anyone how to use P6, but I can't teach people how to communicate, how to get on well with other people. Well, there's certain training you can do, but um, I, mm. I I have two autistic children um, and I'm a massive believer in neurodiversity and the benefits that can bring. Um, and I just want to promote differences. So I suppose yeah. I'm a little bit of a different president for the ACOSTI from what they've had historically. I have worked in engineering 20 plus years, but I am not an engineer. Um, mm -hmm. I am project controls three or three, rightly or wrongly, the thing that you fall into like 20 odd years ago. Um, and I do loads of training and just upskilling the next generation. So that's where my focus is for ACOSTI is how can we help people currently in project controls? How can we help people that want to join project controls? How can we attract a different membership than we currently have? Yeah. That's awesome. The way you said that, you're such a straight shooter, and and I love that. Um, I mean, and if, if and everyone's not convinced, I mean, just look at Martin. You know, anyone can learn this skill. Um, you know, we've got some people on this panel today that uh, you know just blow your mind while they're here. But project controls, we all fall, we all fall into it. Um, even that in itself is a story, I'm sure, Christine. I mean, where did you start? I know you, you kind of started in the oil and gas, but how did it get get started for you? I didn't. I started before that. I started in utilities. Before. Yeah, so I worked in health and safety for the fire brigade. Um, and there were two jobs when you used to look for jobs in the local newspaper rather than online. There wasn't really online. Um, there was a health and safety job and there was this other job called uh, project controls. And I applied for both. Uh, didn't even get an interview for the health and safety job. Got an interview and offered the job in project controls and just fell into it. And that was what, Incredible. 2001? Yeah, I'm sure I'm yeah. a little bit here. No, that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, spent, <clears throat> I think it's great. Five years in utilities, then 10 in oil and gas, and then five in nuclear. So, Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Now you've got me thinking, you know, what happens when you pit, you know, um, organized minorities and religions with neurodiverse people? That would be some fireworks, I'm sure. But, um, but I think it's great that uh, you want to promote differences uh, because, again, um, you know, that, that shows how unique we are as humans and the value that everyone brings. You know, we used to always talk about people bringing superpowers to the business. You know, everyone's got their own strengths and weaknesses, et cetera. And I guess that's kind of really predicated on this, on this episode around soft skills and, and what you can bring from a, from a non-technical perspective. Cause as you said, I think I agree with most of that. Most technical skills can be taught. Um, some people are talented, more talented than others. That's fine. Um, but when it gets to the softer skills and I, I'm, I'm not sure if I like that word soft skills because it doesn't really give it, value um what do you what do you I don't call a better them softer word skills yeah what do you call, I call them? them essential skills essential skills that's a good one yeah i like that i've and, heard uh, fusion skills is the other thing as well but i'm not quite sure yeah that lands so well with me but. we have had a podcast haven't we dale martin uh where we did talk about the fusion of skills i think that's almost like the the evolution of of roles more than necessarily just soft but how, how roles in the future are effectively going to be more than one hat, which we're kind of seeing now anyway. Um, and I think that along with how do you cope with, um, you know, back-to-back -back teams meetings, increased pressure without a doubt, um, bigger projects, more complex, more people, and um, and obviously a skills gap, which means that, you know, obviously people are carrying more of a load. Um, it can be very overwhelming, kind of, Christine, in the project world. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Um... And I, when you talk about sort of the skills gap, 
I do endpoint assessment for apprenticeships in project controls and they come through and they do their technical part really well. So they can put a cost report together or they can do a network analysis diagram or they can put a risk register together. But it's those questions. OK, so what is that telling you? And, and I think mm. that's the bit that's missing. People, I mean, at school you're taught, aren't you? You need to revise for this exam and you're taught how to pass an exam. You're never taught how to think. And that's the difference. I think we, we're, we're growing a lot of robots. And, and I say that nicely because I do have four kids. So I can see their little mini robots and they're taught how to pass exams and not so well in some of my kids' cases, but that's a different mm. story. Um, at which point they're then set up to fail. And it's like, well, no, you, just because you're not that way inclined, you might be better off hands-on doing something, or you might be a great communicator, but that doesn't mean you can pass maths. It's, mm -hmm. I don't know, I just like to think everyone's got something to offer and it's finding out what they like doing and what they're good at. If someone's good yeah. at communicating, put them in a communications role or get them to be, the, certainly in project controls, get them to be the one and go and liaise with clients or go and liaise with the horrible client customer that you may have um, because yeah. they're good at it. Mm. I had a fascinating conversation the other day about, you know, obviously this, this AI kind of mainstream hit. I think we're kind of seeing the precipice of that um, for good or bad, right? And how it's going to impact projects and work in general. And, you know, people are scared of their roles being lost and all this, you know, all this jazz. But what was interesting was the conversation we had around what happens to people and the most valued skills. And one we decided on, just because we, were, we like to debate, I like to do this on, on the side as well, um, was that creativity would be one of the most essential skills in any role, not just in the arts and the creative, you know, it would be a mainstream skill set in project controls, project management, because now you're not asked to be transactional. Now you're asked to solve problems and to solve problems, you need to be in a space where you can think and to think you need to have that creative idealistic kind of, um, um, modality installed and um and that's not really conducive to the way we work today right because if you can imagine someone asked me he said we need to be more inv innovative christine well how can you be more innovative if you're going to be in teams back-to-back -back calls for eight to ten hours a day you can't force innovation that way you need people to, ha to kind of come together with different thoughts and different practices and experiences and neurodivergencies um and then you'll have a diversity of thought, which create innovation. Um, I want to get into these definitions because I know we we need a baseline, Christine, with every acronym we get thrown at. You can imagine how many acronyms we get. Uh, I can throw I, loads more at you if you want. Oh, I'm sure you can. Actually, ACOSTE, can you tell me what ACOSTE means? Uh, Association for Cost Engineering. All right, that's that's simple. All right, you pass. All right. I, I, it took me a while to get AACE. Uh, organized because a lot of our members didn't even know what it stood for and there was an internal debate but eq iq and mq now i know the first two and probably most of our listeners do as well um but what is mq first and then what what are your definitions for the other two so motivational quotient is what mq stands for mm. so when i talk about my definitions so iq and i don't like to think well well, in business today, everyone thinks, well, what sort of degrees have you got or master's qualifications or grades did you get? But it's more than that. So you, when you think about your IQ, you can have people that aren't very good at taking exams, but actually very intelligent. Um, so I think of IQ, I mean, 
my one of my kids sat some grammar kids test a long time ago and they did non-verbal reasoning now that's not something they get taught at school that is either intelligence or it's not intelligence um and there's always that famous quote and i'm going to get it wrong who it's by but it's like if you judge a fish by how well it can climb a tree it'll always think it's stupid so i think yeah there's only one Mm. way that we measure people on intelligence but i don't think it's right but how else do you do it do you give everybody an iq test when they come for a job it's not reasonable you don't carry around a little card on your driving license that says your iq is this um again is that a fair way to do it no probably not um so i think exam results and where you've got to and it's possibly because i didn't follow a traditional route and i didn't go to university um i've since done open university but i didn't go school than university i'm very much very much for the underdog let's put it that way that doesn't mean i don't think people with degrees and master's qualifications are stupid or shouldn't be considered it's not that at all um but i'm very much people that have taken the non-traditional route and ended up where they have um because that takes grit and determination to be honest Mm -hmm. um yeah i agree so when you talk about emotional intelligence, it's about understanding your emotions and you have to be aware your self-awareness has to come first before you can recognise it in other people. Um, I think mine has probably come with age and being a parent and everything else that goes with it. You can't, I don't know, whether I come across, I'm naturally an aggressive person, but I've learned to be assertive. Um, and I think understanding your emotions and I think blokes are getting better at it. I know my husband certainly has chats with his mates about their emotions or when they have times of mental ill health and they chat now. And I think that's a good thing because I think a lot of blokes think, well, I shouldn't be emotive at work and I can't cry and that's a weakness. Well, actually, it's a strength. It shows you really care. Um, but it depends on the circumstances. You obviously don't want to go around crying all day because everyone might think that you have some issues but in the right circumstances is it a bad thing yeah so you need to be self-aware and understand your own emotions and and what triggers you so if you felt something in the past you'll tell yourself the same story within a matter of milliseconds so if you're in a state of you maybe being made or potentially being made redundant you've been made redundant before automatically this is how i felt last time this is exactly what happened last time. This is what's going to happen again. And that's not necessarily true, but you can't tell your mind that. And it's like, yeah, milliseconds that he comes up with it. Um, mm. So, yeah, you need to you need to understand your root of your emotion. Where is this coming from? Is this how everyone else should feel in this situation? Am I slightly different? What's Everyone has stuff going on in their lives. So if you were to make somebody redundant when they're really happy in their marriage, their kids are doing great at school, everything's rosy. Is that going to be the same as somebody that's possibly just got divorced or just separated from their partner or their children have got an illness? And people take things in different lights, depending upon what's going on outside. And everyone has something going on outside. So I think you just have to be quite mindful of knowing people, reading people's emotions and checking in with them really so that's sort of your emotional quotient and then your motivational quotient um so that's about understanding and influencing people's motivations everyone's motivated by different things 
and certainly when I've been in courses beforehand, um, I'm the odd one out. Um, and I don't mind being the odd one out. I'm generally quite often the odd one out. or um, And that's fine by me, but you have to be okay with that. So people are motivated by money, by status. Um, but I'm motivated by developing. And that seems to be quite odd. I think it's becoming more common nowadays um, because there is so much to learn. When you And I think when I start off in my career, you, you have to be autonomous. I'm very, I don't know about the disc profile, I'm very red. Be, be brief, be bright, be gone. That is me. I know that's what he. I like working with people that are the other colours because they bring me a little bit back into line, which I absolutely love. But when you start off in your career, you, you strive to be the best. You strive to understand everything. You're supposed to make decisions. Um, but then when you get up into management and leadership, it's all about collaboration and understanding other people and mm. understanding other people's motivations. And it, it completely flips on its head. It's like everything you've done up until now, it's got you here, but now you need to change. And I think it's when you talk about acronyms, so you have your, your IQ, your EQ, your MQ, you have then your AQ, your adaptability quotient, you have your CQ, your cultural quotient. Um, and then above everything else, it's like, but you need to be you. And it's like, okay, I've got all these things being thrown at me. I need to be an expert in all these things, understand all these things, but I still need to be me. And I think that's the difficult place to be sometimes, which makes mm -hmm. you very Marmite to people. Yeah, or Vegemite if you're in Australia. We got Vegemite down here, so you know. I'm just translating for the listeners, Christine. I, yeah. I do yeah. not judge. I'm unjudging at the moment. So look, I think the uh, the other thing is like I think with with these challenges is um, you know getting access to the right learning. So let's say you want to be a proactive person and you think you need some skills in the soft area to be improved, and maybe it's EQ regulating your emotions so you can be a better listener or more active and empathetic or whatever it might be. How do you go about that? What's the best way or is there not a best way depending on who you are and where you're from? Uh, I think it does depend on how best you learn as well. Do you want to join a webinar? Do you want to be involved in a conversation or just just want to listen to a conversation? Uh, do you want to do some active learning and go and read some books or do you want to see a visual presentation? It's very much dependent upon how you best take information in. So yeah. are you a visual learner? Are you an auditory learner? Are you a kinesthetic learner? How do you learn best and what works for you? So if you are a visual learner, you might want to join a presentation so you can see things on screen. Um, if you are an auditory learner, you might listen to a podcast um, because that's how it goes in for you. And if you're kinesthetic, you might do a multitude of things, but then take it away, see how you feel about it, and then maybe go back to something or maybe then go and Google something. Um, I think it's really difficult. I mean, for the A... Costy, I've done webinars um, and I'm going to do some more. Um, and they do cover a lot of the softer skills. So it does cover communication and adaptability, resilience. Um, I'm going to do emotional intelligence, motivational quotient. Um, because there is very little out there on those type of areas. You'll find multitudes on planning, on cost, on risk, on estimating, even project life cycles. Um, but people skills... I've joined um, management conferences or maybe um, SEN conferences. I know it's a bit strange if you're not necessarily interested in special educational needs, but they do a lot of behavioural stuff in those. Um, I did my mm. mental first, first aid training. I got to understand more about 
suicide and depression and, and people's thought processes. It's putting yourself in situations that, that aren't the norm, I think, is, is the only way to do it at the moment. Yeah. Well, if there's any ideas after this, because we talked about being creative and all that, you know, Dale and Martin and I would love to be involved in any type of webinar where we could share. I think there's something around soft skills for practicality and application. I mean, the hard bit is a lot of the examples, or at least the courses that I've seen for this type of, um, these types of offerings are generally so distant from where we actually need to apply them that they're irrelevant from a demonstration perspective. And you say, well, because I, I find this, I, I tend to sit in that neurodivergent space as well, Christine, as you probably can gather. And, and so for me, um, I'll take all three of those learnings any day of the week, right? So I'll read something, then I'll have to listen to it, then I'll have to do it, and then I'll probably go back to reading it, and then I'll listen to it. Uh, even getting to this podcast this morning, I'm still asking Dale for the link, and it's been probably three years. So I think for, for, for us, you know, there needs to be some area created almost for um, practical applications of soft learning for the use in project management or project delivery or project controls or whatever it might be. Um, what's your views on that? I mean, you, you work in that learning space now, right? Um, yeah. Have you seen anywhere that's forming or have you got some ideas of how to best deliver that uh, to, the, to the members? So I think that's certainly one of the things that I want to bring in as the new president of the ACOSD is giving our members those type of learnings. Um, and we're creating a well, new branding, new website, but more importantly, creating a community area where people can go and ask those questions or ask the members, what do you want to see from the next webinar? And it might not be we do a technical one for a whole year, but that's because people want other things, but they need to tell us what they want. Um, I can write a course on anything. I can have a discussion on anything, um, but someone needs to tell me they want it. Mm. I don't want to force it upon them, <laughs> but I'd love to. But there are certainly people you'd want to pick out that you've worked with and go, right, you definitely need to go on cultural awareness training. You need to go on yeah. emotional intelligence training. But you can't just go around saying that to people. You hope that they realise they are lacking in these areas and want to improve and just say, okay, I'd like a webinar on building resilience. How, how do, what is it and how do I actually go about doing this? And, and come from someone in the industry or other people within ACOSD that work in the industry, it's that practical application. We've all got different stories to tell. Um, we've all worked for particularly difficult clients and it's how did you overcome that? What worked? More importantly, what hasn't worked? Um, because that's the thing in project controls, I think you, you only learn by your really horrible projects and getting yourself out of a hole, which is generally most projects. They're not delivered on time into budget. Everyone shoots the messenger, which is project controls. Mm -hmm. um, but it's how you deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. We've got plenty of bulletproof vests in the, in the closet. So, um, yeah, we can bring them <laughs> out. Um, I find it fascinating listening to you chatting there to Val, because there's so many places we could go with this. I mean, I was just thinking in terms of IQ, so sort of technical skill, it's, it's quite easy to these days because we've, I think we've been given the techniques to understand someone's technical capability. But apart from the training, I don't know if organizations or managers or leaders are equipped to identify EQ and MQ levels in people. And 
if we could, then there wouldn't actually be an issue to say, actually, you need to improve on your EQ or you need to improve on your MQ. Just like we can say, you need to improve on your planning capability or your understanding of earned value or your understanding of, you know, a work breakdown structure, whatever the case might be. Um, so it feels like we're very early doors on this topic, which is fantastic. But if we peel back some of the layers, Christine, um, it was quite interesting as you're chatting there around, you know, how sort of it's getting better in men sharing their, their feelings and things like that around the whole EQ side. And um, Val and Martin will know Al Simonite. I caught up with Al just a bit earlier. And we're chatting about how he, he, he was saying that he, he had heard on uh, about one or two men that had, you know, in, in the recent few years taken sort of leave because they had sort of mental health stress type type challenges to work through. And whilst the organizations were very good at supporting them during those phases, when they returned, there was this sort of unspoken underlying tone of, well, maybe you're not tough enough, you know, type thing. And we were saying that should actually be applauded to say, you know what, I'm struggling here and I need some time out for me. And we don't do that enough in our profession. We don't go, actually, you know what? Well done for looking after yourself. That's actually really, really good. Because if you can't look after yourself, you won't be able to look after anyone else, right? Yet we still hear stories where it's almost frowned upon, not out loud, but there's underlying tones, which still flabbergasts me. And I wonder perhaps if we're in a bit of an echo chamber where we talk to people that get this and understand this, yet the masses still don't. I'm not sure. Um, I think I think there's a lot of that, Dale. I th- and I also think mm. the problem comes with the managers and senior leaders that see it as a weakness. I mean, I, I've been speaking to people and there was somebody that said, yeah, but if you go off with mental illness, are they actually going to promote you next? Because it shows that you can't quite cope with it. And I was like, it doesn't mean that at all. And it's having those conversations to say, it does. It just means that somebody has a period of mental ill health. It can happen to anyone. And, then, and when I did my mental health first training, first aid training, a period of depression is, I think they classified it as a, as a period of two weeks of not feeling yourself. It's not very long at all. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean you have to go on to medication. That doesn't mean you have to go to counselling every single day. It's just recognition that actually I'm not quite me at the moment. And yeah. if you have the managers or, or the leaders of the people that are experiencing this and they understand it and go, okay, what can we do? When you come back, you don't wrap them in cotton wool because that quite often they don't want that either. They want things to return to normality. Um, but it's just checking in with them. Are sort of, are you okay? If they need a week off, they need a week off. They need a month off. They need a month off. Um, no business stops because one, or no business should stop because one person's ill. Um, but recognising it in yourself, yeah, should be applauded because that will probably make them a great manager or a great leader going forward because you then understand it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. Um, and, you know, coincidentally, I was listening to a Stephen Bartlett pod- podcast um, this week and they were talking about how, as I guess, as a society, how we've evolved and there were, there were a few interesting but that probably lent itself to this conversation where um, if you look at social class and earnings, there's 
there's study, there's data that suggests that as you move up social class and you move up in terms of earnings, you actually lose touch and you don't have as much empathy and compassion for people because you don't experience the same levels because things are easier and they're not as tough. And the other point that they brought up, which was I thought was hell of interesting, is that we know as we, you know when you when when babies are born, the first thing they do is they give it to the mother and their skin on skin touch. And there's studies that have shown that touch actually releases certain uh, hormones and chemicals and allows us to improve the way we we look at life and our empathy and and all, all sorts of various aspects um, to us being human, but because of the way society has gone over the past 20 or 30 years, touching someone is actually not okay because you know it's sort of, it, it borders on sexual harassment. And so we've almost gone the, too far the other way. But if you touch someone in the right way, a pat on the back, you know, a simple touch on the arm to say, well done, those types of things go a long way and we don't get enough of that. And as humans, we need that. And there's a the study to suggest that, Loneliness is 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 greater than it's ever been in history. I don't know, you know, how they collect all of that data, but they've done the studies on it. But it brings us back to how we operate within projects as well, because we're so focused on data and and analytics. And we had a conversation recently, Christine, where it's not either or; it's and; it's both. We need to focus on both using the technology as well as how do we improve as human beings which I don't know. I think there's so much around data these days, but we're not equipping ourselves properly. And I'm interested that you're putting out webinars and you want to teach in this space, but I'm really curious as to how um, people will receive that and what their reaction to it would be, because it's very foreign. I, as Val says, we'd love to be a, a part of that experience because I don't think we have really. Mm. And I think it is foreign. And I think initially, well, I'm going to test it out at our conference for this unjudging somebody, um, how well it goes down. And someone said, well, maybe if you record one of the sessions and maybe people can see it, they'll be less afraid of it, which is does have, have some merit in it because people fear the unknown. So if you don't know what you're walking into or maybe doing snippets for promoting the webinars, this is what it's going to cover. This is what to expect. So people aren't afraid of joining in or aren't afraid of um, putting their hand up and saying, actually, I want to know a little bit more about this. That, so it's very interesting when you said about loneliness. I mean, we, we all work from home. Well, I've worked from home personally for the last six years. So when COVID came to me, it was just business as usual. Mm. But the amount of people that haven't had contact with people or even the younger generation do everything via social media. If you, when I say to them, if you liked a boy when I was younger, you had to phone up their house and there was only one phone in the house. You generally got their parent on the phone and you were utterly mortified and you had to ask for the boy's name. And, and they're like, oh, my God, they're utterly horrified by it. But there was no other way. Yeah. And kids now, I don't think, communicate with each other. But they do via text and snap and Instagram and everything else. But they don't actually talk to each other. Mm -hmm. You know, so one of the teams that, I've, that, that I'm working with, they're – they, there are three guys that started working um, during the pandemic. So they, they have no experience working pre-pandemic. They don't know what a nine to five in the office every day is like. 
both the pros and the cons. Um, and it was fascinating having that discussion with them to say, you know, most people I know that worked post pandemic usually woke up somewhere between 5.30 and 6 a.m. to get ready, get themselves ready, do the commute, where they're like rolling out of bed at like 8.39, switching on their laptop, and they're working. But not only that, they, they were like, well, how did it work? Like, do you know, who covered your lunch? <laughs> you covered your own lunch, right? It's not an excursion. Um, transport costs, yeah, you covered your own transport costs. You were expected to go in. Um, and then also being in the office, when you get them together, it's fascinating because you know when other people were on the phone. You remember we had desk phones back in the day, none of this, you know, teams. Um, and you knew when someone was on the phone, there's sort of etiquette. You wouldn't sort of raise your voice too much because you knew they're on the phone. Where because they weren't familiar with that, when someone's on a call, even, even though it was a team's call, they'd be talking at high volumes and you'd have to kind of go, you know. So there's the social awareness, right? This this reality face-to-face -face social awareness that I don't think we have as well. But I wanted to ask you, because IQ and MQ, by the sounds of it, the way you explained it, and, and tell me if I, I got it wrong, this it feels like there'll be a lot of overlap between the two. Because in in order to motivate someone, you potentially have to have a high, sorry, not IQ, EQ, EQ and MQ, yep, EQ and MQ. You potentially have to have quite a, a high level of EQ to be able to apply a high level of MQ. Um, now, I'm totally out of my depth with MQ here, so it'd be great if we could unpick that a little bit. But also, as you're going through that, I think it's quite important for listeners to understand the differences between empathy and compassion, because we talk a lot about empathy, but we don't talk a lot about compassion, because compassion feels too soft. And empathy feels like the buzzword to talk about. But I think compassion is actually where the difference comes in. That's a very interesting insight for you, Dave. <laughs> so, so I suppose empathy for me is being able to understand the other person's emotions. So if they say, I'm upset, you can empathize and say, well, in that situation, yes, I can understand why you would be upset. But it's also very important when you empathize with somebody you're not taking their emotions away from them. And it's not about you, it's about them. And I think that's really important. Um, it's like, oh, someone said, um, my husband's parents or his mum died. Everyone goes, oh, I know how you feel because my mum's died. Well, no, actually, it's not the same. You can show empathy by saying, I'm really, really sorry about that. Um, is it, how do you feel? Or is there anything I can do for you? That shows empathy. Um, but compassion is... Compassion's the hug, Dale, for me. Yeah. You, you know instantly when, when you need to cross that borderline between, I'm sorry, hands off and hands on. And that doesn't mean I go around hugging everybody inappropriately. It's not that way at all. But you know when someone needs that little bit more. It's like, do you need to send them, I don't know, what did I do for someone that wasn't, wasn't feeling very well? I sent them like... Uh, a book on quotes and stuff and just sent it through the post to them that shows compassion without having to hug somebody but it's like actually i understand what will probably make you feel a little bit better and i'm going to do that whether it's a bar of chocolate that you place on their desk because you know you've had a really bad day that's compassion that's not empathy yeah 
Yeah, and, and I think I think it's one of those as well where the more we talk about it and the more we practice it, the better we get at it as well. Um, but talking about practicing, getting into the the training side of things. I mean, what what would it what would it look and feel like to those that have never done something like this before? What would you know EQ and MQ training look like, or learning or education? Uh, so I've written a whole module on emotional intelligence. Um, and it comes with lots, I think it comes with like four different videos, probably about an hour and a half in length, and then a workbook to go with it. But it's about understand, more about understanding yourself and how emotional intelligence works. Um, the bit missing, and you mentioned earlier, is how to put that into practice. That's mm. the bit that is missing that needs to be added on. Um, so motivational quotient will be, okay, so what are the motivational factors for people? People automatically think status, job, uh, learning and development, um, there, but there's so many other things that motivate people. Maybe it is being able to take their kids to school in the morning. That is a high motivational factor for people changing jobs. So do you think about that? Um, how can you put these into practice? So is it hybrid working? Is it giving people the opportunity to say, okay, between 8.30 and 9.30, of course you can take your child to school every day because that's what you need to get the best out of you at work. So it's everyone's going to be different. Not everyone's got small children. Not everyone wants children. Um, but it might be an elderly parent who's going through an illness. Okay, I need every Wednesday off to be able to go and take them to hospital. And that needs to be okay because it's a case of they're not dipping out of their job. They're not showing less commitment. What they're actually doing is doing something to make them better at work because they're not worrying about all these things or all these commitments they can't carry out because mm. they have to work 40 hours a week, 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, Whatever it is, it's that flexibility. You get the best out of people. But it might be salary. That might be what motivates people. But you, you need to understand them or at least ask them or at least understand what some of the motivational factors could be. Some mm. you won't even think about. And if I, if I may dig a little bit deeper, how, how did you compile the training? What sort of resources did you use? Because as we're saying, there's not much out there. Um, did you, is it something you pulled together on your own? Did you have a group of people contributing? Um, how, how, how did that come together? No, I pulled it together on my own. And I think it's from a combination of seminars that I'd been to, things that I was researched, things that I'd looked up and my own thoughts really. So it was a combination of when Val said earlier, yeah, I'd do all of those things. That's exactly what I did. Um, and you sit there and think, well, okay. Has this been talked about more than once? Is this, is this the unique thing? Is this just one person's point of view? Um, and it's all that research that goes into it to say, is this credible what I'm about to tell people? Or is it just one person's opinion of it? And, and yeah, if you Google anything, you'll get all sorts of stuff that comes up. Um, but when you talk about where do you find this information, it's, just, well, it's not on project controls or it's not on professional sites, like project professional sites. You'll find it on um coaching sites or you will find it on um sen sites you you, you won't find it in the tra traditional places you would go and look because it's as you said it's not the norm <laughs> i love the fact you brought up that word traditional um we we posted a, a discussion debate recently <laughs> on linkedin around traditional project management methodologies and there's a lot of uh debate around what traditional means or doesn't mean. Um, 
And yeah, we, we, we do post these discussions for people to have open discussions, but it's fascinating how the question gets attacked when you use a word like traditional. What does it actually mean? Which is great. But talking about being attacked, Christine, we've got Machine Gun Martin, who's prepped and ready there for you. So I'm going to hand over to him and bring him in. Cheers. <laughs> um, a couple of follow-ups to, to what you were discussing with Dale. It was, it was really fascinating. Um, are, are there any free tests or resources for, for things like EQ and MQ, um, just to, for people to gauge roughly where they are on the scale. Um, I, I was yeah. fortunate enough to have done one through through work and I found it, it was a bit different to what I was expecting. Um, you could probably guess which way. Um, but it, it was really, it, it was really interesting. And, and one of the follow-ups to that was, um, do you think you can improve your EQ and MQ score you know, if you're in the, let's say, lower quartile, can you sort of work towards getting it towards the average, towards towards the middle? Um, I think or, anyone... or is it more a case around just trying to understand where you're at? Sorry. Okay. No, I think you need to understand where you're at and be quite realistic. Is there standard tests out there for e EQ and MQ? No, is the simple answer to that. Um, that doesn't mean that I might not think about creating one, certainly for the ACOS D membership. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think you can train yourself to get better at anything. Um, the difference being, though, whether that comes across as genuine, as in you've genuinely improved yourself, or you just know the right words to say, but you can't feel what goes with it. So if someone's asking you to improve your emotional intelligence, and you go, okay, well, I can recognise this emotion, and I know what it says, and I know what my response should be. So that's the response that you do give. However, you haven't read the situation very well at all. Um so yes, you can. Anyone can get better at it, um, but be genuine with that. And if you honestly don't know what somebody's emotion is, and and you know them well enough, ask them. So that, I think there are six six or eight core emotions, at which point everything feeds out from that. So are they feeling hurt? Are they? Is, is it a love emotion? Is it a sad emotion? Um, is it fear? And maybe having those conversations with people that you trust and they can then be honest with you and you can be honest with them so it's finding i suppose it's finding that buddy or that group of people that you're quite happy to have those conversations with generally your partner is quite a good one um if they're willing to open up um because they don't tend to judge you as much as as you think maybe other people might or it's a close friend or children children are generally really really honest they're a really good tool um mm. and, and when i say val neurodivergent children are amazing at it because there is no black there's no gray areas there they are black or white um and whilst it can be quite yeah but i love it I yeah absolutely see the benefits yeah. of it there i know exactly where i stand i know exactly how they feel because they've told me um and you have to be okay with people being that blunt because it's not a reflection of you. It's a reflection of how they're feeling. It's like, okay, that's fine. I can deal with that. Or that's fine. Let's see how we can deal with that. Mm. It might even be that. It might even be, I mean, particularly like they seem to just have very acute observational skills and they're just Easily. being completely objective. Yeah. And uh, that can be harsh too and um and sometimes i mean sorry to jump in there martin but i think the other question i was just going to ask is what if you can't be 
what if you can't have IQ, EQ, or MQ uh, to the degree that is required, you know, for the role? I mean, one of the challenges we have, I think, is is the complexity of having a diversity of groups and thinkers and people from various backgrounds, and then also requirements that we say you need to have potentially soft skills to be at the managerial level and beyond. Um, does that exclude people just by default? I don't know whether it excludes, well, it depends on how bad it is you're talking about. You could have someone that <laughs> understands all these things, but it's just yes. really bad in practice. Yes. Or, um, and it's about, say, talk about, say, if you had a neurodivergent man- manager that was just really blunt and honest, well, then it's making those people aware of the fact you have a neurodivergent manager. This is this is how they they not behave, but but this is what to expect. Um, so therefore, their expectations meet what is what they're getting. Yeah, and, and that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's different. Like so an Elon Musk like, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, he's a complete nutter. But let's not talk about him. <laughs> I, I would not want to work for him. No. Um, but, I mean, when you talk about neurodivergent people, Albert Einstein, Steven Spielberg, um, these people are neurodivergent. They absolutely excelled in their field. Mm. Um, and, again, it, whether you're neurodivergent or not, and whether you can gain these skills or not, I think everyone gets to a point in their career that they should turn around and go, actually, I'm not doing very well in this job. I need to stay, take a step back. But that takes a brave person to say, I am not doing the best for this team. So therefore, either I need to change or I've tried to change and it's not working, or I need to hand this over to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Because not everyone is going to make the greatest manager. Not everyone is going to be a subject matter expert. Not everyone is going to be a great leader. Um but that's partly due to them and partly what they want as well. What motivates them? Surely if you want to be motivated by having an excellent day at work every single day, but you absolutely hate managing people, well, don't be a manager then. And unfortunately, I think that's the way that businesses look at it. They, they, they get their technical experts and you promote them to be managers and then you promote them to be leaders. Well, that might not be the best use of their skills. You might find somebody else in their team is a better manager and they actually still want to stay doing the technical side. But again, and this is probably a bit controversial, businesses tend to have this layer that there is a cap at the technical level and there shouldn't be because technical expertise is just as important as managerials, managers and leaders. Um, so don't cap it. It's just different skills and diff- people's different preferences. Do, do we have any data on what we think motivates people in the workforce now and do we think that's potentially changed in the last few years if not you know maybe your own experiences from from your colleagues definitely is um and it's it's more not around necessarily what's changed in the last couple of years it's due to the generations um they have different motivations so the latest generation i can't never remember whether it's Z or whatever it is um (laughs) is they are motivated well they're, they're rarely going to stay in a job for more than about three three to five years they are motivated by work-life balance they are motivated with sustainability um people of my generation i think slightly before my generation are motivated by a stable job and being able to provide for their families that seems to worry the younger generation less because they're just like it's fine it'll sort itself out i think they're much more 
free and easy and happy with things like that rather than my generation where you get indoctrinated now you need to get a job and and then you get married and then you have children and you need to stay in that job and you can't leave a job until you've got another job and whereas the younger generation today are like that's fine i'll just go and temp for a little bit or oh i'll go and be a youtuber or they'll find some mm-hmm. other job or other way of making money um that certainly people of my my generation certainly me don't even think about you you think about things in a slightly different way do you, do you think there's potentially um, differences between sectors? So where, where I'm going with this is we had Will Woodhead on a, f- a few weeks ago, and he manages a company that has um, technology and some of the hard hats on construction sites. And his, his finding was it, it's money, ultimately, that, that motivates people. And I, I'd probably agree with you that between the generations, um, do you, do you think that's just because of the the industries they're in? Are there going to be quite big differences between that, or or do you think it's a more general uh, shift in? So when general... I said I was different to people in the past, probably ninety percent of the room said money. Yeah, I was never motivated by money, which made me odd, mm. um, because I was just like, if I develop myself and I have all these different skills, I'm going to end up earning more money. So I'm not motivated by the money per se. I'm motivated by the development opportunities that I get which will lead in time to greater salaries or changing career or changing industry or whatever it is. But that interests me more than just physical money because we all get to a stage of where you earn enough. Um, hopefully you get to a stage where you earn enough and, and you don't take a job then for money. It's got to be about, well, it is for me. And this is probably where I am different. I'm motivated by the role that I'm employed to do, not by the money I'm paid to do it. Because it's like, does this speak to me? Is this one of my passions? If it doesn't, um, I'm not necessarily overly interested. Um, so mm. a couple of years ago, when I got given this training job versus a very big infrastructure project in the UK as their project controls director, I ultimately took the training job, even though it paid less, because the other, the other one was just another project. I, okay, I would deliver a project. But on the flip side, I get to train people and to change thousands of people's lives. Which one speaks to me more? So mm. I may be a little bit different because I'm motivated by different factors, but that, that's what I mean about it. you need to understand it. Could I just throw this one out there to Dale and Val? Do you, would you say your motivations have shifted in the last 10 years as you've got towards those director type roles? Maybe start with Dale. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, well, yes and no, I'd say. The, the, I, I think I've been lucky because I've always had a growth mindset where I've always wanted to learn, where money wasn't the motivator. It's am I adding to my skill set, am I adding to my skill set, and am I adding to my skill set? And you reach a level where I think even in the skill set where you know enough about enough as well, similar to Christine's, you have enough money type level. And so I'm still learning, you know, but I've got to a place where I now feel like giving back as well. So how can I help others learn? And so it's not a change from a shift of focus from money to giving. It's a shift from learning for myself to how can I help others learn? And so that has shifted for me 
Um, I think one of the other comments before I let Val come in about his motivations shifting or not um, is just with regards to the current generation coming in, there is this notion of that the current generation coming to the workforce, the key, th the key thing they're looking for is to make a difference to the world, right? But yet when you peel back the layers a little bit and you ask them, well, how do you want to make a change? They don't know. And I find that fascinating because they may want to make a change to the world, but if they don't know how they want to make a change, how are you supposed to motivate them because you don't know if they don't know? Um, but before you comment on that, Christine, let's bring in Val to answer Martin's question. Yeah, mine hasn't changed. I think the only influence I had, because it's never been about money, um, it's been about doing things that are hard. Uh, you know, I'm ex-defense, so one of the things that I've always enjoyed is just the grind. I've loved just doing things that others can't. And for whatever reason, it's like puzzles for me. Projects are like puzzles. And so I wanted to work on things that were so difficult, no one else wanted to do them. And that gave me an, a, an incredible skill set and a gift. And then money became apparent when I got a wife and kids because, you know, they need to be fed and watered and all that stuff. And uh, so my, my focus slightly shifted on behalf of others. I think that's called compassion. And, uh, and, then, and then the same has returned. So, you know, like to Dale, I do like to give back. Uh, but I do connect with this contribution to the community. I feel like if there is no other significant contribution other than to ensure the company you work for meets its financial obligations and makes profit. I see that as a very empty, shallow goal for me personally. I'm not saying for everybody. Um, but if it's contributing to the community, if it's helping the wider, and I think that's what you're talking about, Christine, if, the fan, if it's fanning flames to influence and improve the lives of many and I can be part of that, that sounds interesting to me. That sounds motivating to me. And I would also say, I don't think you can motivate someone directly. You can influence them, but at, at the end of the day, they have to convince themselves. It's, it's almost like slotting into their priority order system is to say, you need to get out of bed at five in the morning. There's no way you can convince everybody to get out of the bed at five in the morning until they've convinced themselves. And it's the want. The want has to be more than the desire to sleep in, right? And that, that, that willpower... Um, has to be driven by a higher purpose. And that, that's a really interesting space there. Um, so so I, I spend a lot of time thinking about my own behaviors and why they're, what they're driven from. Um, but again, I think if you're, if you're in this space and you're probably thinking about going, oh shit, now this is getting too deep and philosophical. But I think if you, if you take a step back from this podcast or maybe re-listen to it, um, finding your equilibrium out there in the space and then seeing how you can give forward or give back will be far more fulfilling than um, increasing your bank account, in my view. Well, it, it, also, when you're chatting there, Val, Christine, is, is that the difference between motivation and inspiration? See, that's an interesting point. So when you talk mm -hmm. about giving back, when I talk about my side hustles or, or the other things that I do, so the ACOSD, being the president of the ACOSD, I give my time for free. I don't get paid for that. Mm. I do NVQ and QCF assessing and endpoint assessing for apprenticeships. Okay, I get paid a nominal amount. I'm not talking about a lot of money, but that's about upskilling the next generation. I sit on a government REIT panel for approving apprenticeship standards, which I think it's about more than 350,000 people have signed up to the apprenticeships on my REIT panel and stuff. I like to think I've played some small part 
in changing 350,000 people's lives. And that's what gets me going. It's not, no disrespect, it's not my day job. Um, it's my other thing. So I'm a parent governor for my daughter's specialist school um, and chair of their finance committee. Again, you don't get paid for it. But it's about making sure there's that robustness that they're going to spend the money in the right places, that they're doing the right things at a school, that I'm helping apprenticeships or people be able to get apprenticeships that are credible. Um, it's all of those things that get me up in the morning. So, again, it's not stuff I get paid for. Yeah, it's amazing. I think the, the burden of responsibility is either something that motivates you or it's something that can be overwhelming or perhaps it could be same. And I, I do think that some people get lost along the way and um, and they fall into project controls and then they find meaning and purpose and they live happily ever after. I think that's the case <laughs> for most people. So check out project controls. It's a lovely spiritual um, guidance system to get your life in order. I always thought about this about planners and certain other technical skills, Christine. Do you find that the skills that you've learned on projects impacted positively your personal life? Um, no. You don't think controls, planning, <laughs> soft I skills? I, a, I think I was always a planner anyway. I've always like new, and maybe that's from having four kids and stuff. And you're like, well, actually we need to plan next year's holiday 11 months in advance yeah. to be able to get the right size villa and the right flights and everything else like that. Um, but I think that's inherent within me before I was in project control. So I've always been a bit of a planner and had a diary and um, cost. Well, well, this, this is the word. So when I, when I grew up, I wanted to be a corporate tax solicitor um, because I like the law and yeah, you're about to wow. the face. Um, I did too. And, and that's because <laughs> it's numbers and it's and it's law as well. So um, I think a lot of these skills I had, but not in the project controls world as such, but had an interest, well, just as me personally. Um, risk is something different. And I think that changes with age. Um, I am now very aware of my own mortality and I take far less risks than I used to. And, I'm, and I think that probably plays an impact when I do risk workshops for clients because I know I'm getting more risk adverse the older I get. Um, so that probably does play some part in, in my skills. Yeah, I, f I feel like for you, Christine, it's the other way, right, where you brought your your personality into the project controls profession and influenced project <laughs> controls, not the other way. <laughs> Which is great. Which is great. We need big, big personalities in the profession. It's a... Uh, it's one of those where sometimes, you know, controls can be quite drive to most when you look at cost engineering or planning or risk management and, you know, bring it to life. It's part of the reason I think myself and Val started this podcast is to, you know, I guess show a bit of, you know, the, the other side to just, just the data, just the spreadsheets and, you know, just the numbers and the charts. Um, but we do still have Martin um, to bring it back down to earth. Um, so <laughs> uh, he's here for us mainly just to give him the banter and he takes it and then swears at us, swears at us offline. Um, so it's his, his own back. But look, it's been, it's been an amazing chat with you, Christian. There's so many places we can still go. So I think we, we probably do need to have a follow-up um, to see how the training goes, what the results are and what changes or impacts it actually has. Because I think that that's pretty key. You know, before I was being controls professionals, we were like, okay, we get the theory, we get the data, it's something new, we understand the training and the intent, 
but let's look at the data and the results thereof and, and try and make assessments. So it'd be great to have you back for that. But before we let you go, um, I'm going to hand to Martin for one or two final questions and then perhaps, perhaps for a bit of a feature question to throw at you as well. Yeah, just just one more thing that piqued my interest earlier. Um, you mentioned around you're, you're doing some training in the next few weeks and you mentioned resilience. And I was wondering how can you teach resilience in, in the workplace? And if so, how, how do you go about it? And just my thinking is surely it's experiential in, in terms of training you, you learn. I'd, I'd be really interested in how you would go about teaching it. So, yeah, so I gave a presentation about resilience in business to the Institute for Apprenticeships and Technical Education. There are obviously slides you can teach people, um, but it's more about the, okay, now what does that mean? That's the most important part. So it's the conversations that go with the training is more important, I feel, than actually what you've got, got on your slides. Um, I'm not saying that the slides aren't great, because they are, they're amazing. Um, but it is always the how, isn't it? Okay, so I know what I need to do, but what does that look like? And how do I actually put that into practice? And I think quite a, with a lot of training, that's the bit that's missing. You explain to them the how to do something, but not the why, the where, the what. What does this look like? How can I put it into practice? What does this actually mean as a result of this? Or am I just doing this because you're telling me I need to do this? Um, but I think resilience is probably the most underrated skill people have. Um, and the more setbacks you come across, I feel, the quicker you can bounce back for them. Um, so people that have gone along very nicely in life, when they get hit with, with something they need to build resilience for, whether that's changing a job or working with someone they don't like or, or anything a bit more sinister, so maybe somebody close to you is ill, um, how do you bounce back from that? So is it the conversations that you have with people? Is it the external help that you seek? Um, I mean, COVID for people was a big thing. Um, and I probably saw it very differently to everyone else, because as I mentioned earlier, I'd worked from home for six years. So for me, it was business as usual. And I took a while for me to get my head around that. because I was like, well, what's wrong with everyone else? Because it was just another day for me. And now everyone's working at home. And it's just like, but it's no different for me. But then I had to understand it from their perspective. Well, OK, they used to being able to see people every day. They're not used to working at home every day. Um, people were feeling lonely. Um, so it was then about, OK, so what do I do in my everyday life for the last six years that hasn't made me feel lonely? And how can I tell people about, well, maybe you need to think about doing this? Because, again, it worked for me. It may or may not work for them. But if they didn't know where to start, it's giving them somewhere to start from. Would, would you tailor your message or your slide deck, depending on the age, maybe, of people coming in? I'm kind of thinking, you know, we've got quite a lot of people doing project controls apprenticeships now. Yeah. How And they, just because of how old they are, really, and the stage they are in their life, they probably haven't really experienced or needed to experience um, things where they, they needed to be resilient. And in the workplace, they're going to work with people they don't like. They're going to work with difficult people. Whereas, you know, I suppose the question is, are you having to tailor your, your presentation for people who are fresh into the workplace and people will say with, you know, five, 10 years experience, maybe maybe more? And what would be the subtle differences between the two? If you were doing it? 
So I think that's quite an interesting thought that you said you think the younger, younger generation are less resilient or have less experience of being resilient. Yeah. I actually think they have more experience of being resilient um, because they've had COVID, because they're constantly tested at school, because they're constantly on social media and you can't get away from it. So everyone is always criticised about something different. So whether it's your haircut, whether it's you suddenly wear glasses or you've got braces or or any other thing. And when I was a kid, if you got bullied, it was left at the school gate. It is not left at the school gate anymore. People just get constant text messages all overnight, multitude of people. I think they are far more resilient than we give them credit for. Um, and I think the younger generation have had a lot more to deal with. Certainly in my generation, you were a kid. I don't think kids are kids for very long nowadays. And, and I think that's a real shame but I think they have built up an inordinate amount of, res of resilience um, that we don't give them credit for. When you talk about tailoring it, I'll probably run my presentation through my my kids. Um, I've got twins that are 17, so I'll probably run it past them. They'll probably tell me I was an old fart and didn't know what I was talking about. But <laughs> probably get their perspective. Does this talk to you? Do, do you actually understand what I'm talking about? Maybe it's the language, but I'm certainly not going to talk how they text sometimes. Um, otherwise, no one would understand me. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I, I think they're resilient in social resilience. I think the, the pressure on kids is particularly, but I, I'll probably sit with Martin on maybe the emotional intelligence piece. I think maybe they could definitely, from my experience in, I mean, more project specific, but their EQ doesn't necessarily, and I think that's a learned skill over time too. It's one of those things you can't necessarily learn. You've got to experience, but, but definitely social resilience. They are. I mean, if I had to deal with the shit that they have to deal with right now, I think I would lose my... I mean, it, it's very demotivating, perhaps, to have the pressure of, of being judged even when you're offline or at home. Um, you know, these it penetrates walls now. So it's a very strange environment, and I'm just observing from afar because as parents, you would know, uh, Christine, there's not much you can really do. You can kind of safeguard them, but, but all you can really... I mean, is, is there any advice as well for, for resilience... Um, tactics i mean can they can they get to a point where there's something you can practice is it is it affirmations on the wall i mean how do you get past um the criticisms of others as you're developing um i think it's or well, thinking to my kids specifically and when you say about emotional intelligence comes with age one of my 17 year olds i've never known emotional intelligence like it even for anyone way beyond that age mm. um so i think part of it's inbuilt actually and I think part of it's down to your personality. Um, I'm not saying it all is. Um, the other one is completely emotionally unintelligent, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> they're on two ends of the spectrum. Um, but but that's fine. I think resilience is certainly for kids to talk to them. Let them know you'll be there. There is nothing that your kid can tell you that you're not. You might be disappointed with them. You might be upset with them, but you're still their parent at the end of the day and you'll help them through it. So as long as they know you, you might judge them, you might ground them, but you're ultimately there for them and you've got their back. Um, but I think it's the same for managers at work. If your people know that you are truly there for them as a manager, they will open up and talk to you. It's when they don't feel comfortable having those conversations that any breakdown or any any disturbance in resilience happens because you don't you think you're on your own. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest problem I think there is. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, interesting conversation. Lines us up for a follow-up 
if I may have one final comment before we end, I, I personally don't think the issue is with resilience in the new generation coming in. I think the, the challenge is with entitlement. Um, I, I think that's the biggest challenge and bringing in motivational quotients with entitlement <laughs> is probably a, a big clash. Um, but let's, let's keep it there because I think when we have the results back, um, that is when we will see what they tell us. Um, with that though, Christine, heading towards the end of the pod, before we let you go, are there any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? Oh, that's a big thing. Um, I think it's when you talk about apprenticeships and you think about the, the next generation of people coming in. I think the only plea I can give to those hiring managers is look for people that have completely different um, different insights or different hobbies or, I mean, one of the best apprentices I ever hired, and part of the reason I hired him, actually, um, he was only 16, so he was very young, um, but he liked stock car racing and then he spoke Russian and then he did army stuff. And I was just like, do you know what? You're a really interesting character. Um, mm. He obviously did well at the test and stuff, but it, above anything, it was, I think you are a people person can chuck yourself into lots of different situations um, rather than going for those students that are A's at everything or um, have done the we'll say traditional things. One of my kids has done it, so I can't really say that, but like the Duke of Edinburgh Award in the UK. Um, something that's a little bit different. And I, th I think that's the plea I would make to hiring managers. Just just look for something that's different. Look for somebody that is going to make a difference to your team, whether it's diversity of thought or um, just just stop getting clones. <laughs> yeah, it's probably worth saying as well. You'll probably have hit and miss sometimes as well. Um, so, oh, yeah. but but it shouldn't stop you from trying, right? It shouldn't no. stop you from trying. But look, and it's if been anything, amazing. fail. Yeah. I say fail. If you fail and you make a wrong decision, it's your first attempt in learning. It doesn't yeah, exactly. mean it's the end. Effort never dies. Exactly, exactly. And talking about failure, Val, any final thoughts? Ouch, man. That was quick. <laughs> uh, you're quick. But I'm quick. <laughs> it is good. Now, I do think um, I do think it's been a, a fascinating journey with, with you, Christine. And I know, um, you know, we are we are talking from all different places in the in the world. And um and we can still come on common ground and talk about interesting facts. And I think we definitely need a round two with you. Thank you so much for being part of this today. Really appreciate it. That's all right. Thank you very much for having me. It's been our pleasure and our privilege. Um, there you have it, folks. That's the end of this episode. But remember, before you go, please do help us pay it forward by sharing a link to this episode on your favorite social media. Once again, a massive thank you to our guest, Christine McLean. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive, and have fun doing it. From me, Val, and Martin, it's bye for now. Project Shadow supports and is a member of Zero Construct. Zero Construct is a new working group that wants to lower carbon construction. Not everyone will be aware, but construction contributes to around 12 to 15% of total carbon emissions. This is a staggering amount, and we need to reduce it. We are a growing community of people that want to help make this change. Everyone is welcome, whether you're an engineer, contractor, or consultant. You just need to want to make a difference. Our aim is to grow a network of experts so we can all learn from each other and make a positive impact in the places where we work. We'll do this by sharing knowledge and making it accessible in engaging ways. 
To join us and find out more, please visit zeroconstruct.com and register as a member. Thank you, and we look forward to speaking with you soon. For more information, blogs, or to support our charities, visit projectchatterpodcast.com. And if you would like to sponsor the podcast, get in touch via our website. You can also leave us a voice message via our anchor page and let us know if there's something or someone specific that you would like on the podcast. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.